we don't need a therapy to make us, you know, to live to 800 tomorrow. We need a therapy that can keep us healthy for the next 10 years, that'll give us 10 extra years of progress in the, in the medical space, and the next therapy will come that will maybe rejuvenate us and keep us even younger. And so, yeah, I think the next decade, not even two decades, the next decade will bring significant therapies that can significantly extend health span. I'm Bri Prestige, and this is Hyperscale, the podcast of the future. We don't know for certain what the future of technology might look like, but we're starting to form some ideas. No answer lasts forever, but we drive transformation with all the right questions. We're curious, we're adapting with the times, we're enjoying the discovery. Today on Hyperscale, we are welcoming a true pioneer in the field of longevity and biotechnology and the CEO of Youth Biotherapeutics, Yuri Dagan. We'll explore the exciting possibilities of extending human lifespan, the ethical considerations of revolutionary technologies, gene editing, and the incredible potential of epigenic rejuvenation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Hyperscale. Today, I've got my friend Yuri on the show, and we recently just came back from a trip in Dublin, didn't we, Yuri? Yes, we did. It was great. It was fun. So we were at the Longevity Conference in Dublin. What was your experience like? Tell me a bit about what it was like on your side. Well, I love Aubrey's conferences. This was a conference by Aubrey DeGray, who's, who's really a visionary of the longevity field, and he always brings great speakers and experts in the field. So it was great to kind of get to concentrate of what's what's really happening in longevity these days and in those few short days, and great to meet people in person again and have conversations kind of you know, off, off the record on some of the things that some research, some groundbreaking research that's happening, not yet being public, but like things that are coming down soon to the public domain. So yeah, it was a great conference. Extremely groundbreaking research. And I must say, what a fantastic group of people. Everyone was so warm and welcoming. Obviously, Georgia and I were filming our documentary as well. And from futurists to transhumanists to biologists, scientists, people working in the longevity space. And I was so happy that I got to meet you, Yuri, as well. And tell us a little bit about your background. I'd love for our guests to learn more. Well, thank you. Yeah, the pleasure was mine. Uh, well, my background is drug development. I've uh, been doing drug development, uh, creating new drugs or translating research into th therapies for close to 15 years now, or maybe even longer. And then eventually I got introduced to longevity while in the process of just working on therapies for actual manifestations of aging, like, for example, Alzheimer's. And uh, when I was kind of told about aging being the root cause of Alzheimer's and many other age-related diseases, this was like a light bulb going on in my mind that actually, yeah, like, why aren't we trying to target that root cause rather than going for the symptoms of aging or the and manifestations of aging, like trying to tackle cancer, trying to tackle things after they happen. And just realizing that the most efficient way to prevent those diseases is by going after the aging process itself. 
and I've been a very uh, vocal advocate for longevity ever since, and then eventually got uh, was able to do drug development in the longevity space, working on therapies that actually go directly after the, the root cause of those diseases, go after aging. And uh, that's kind of, in a nutshell, nutshell, my short story of how I came to work in longevity. Yeah, that's all super interesting. And you've actually got a personal story behind why you're so focused on Alzheimer's, I believe. Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's a very personal story. Initially, well, my grandma, she passed away from Alzheimer's, and that's what got me interested in, well, in general in the disease. And then I also did a DNA test and found out that I won the genetic lottery, and I have two copies of this certain uh, allele, certain variant of the gene called ApoE, apolipoprotein E. And so I have the kind of epsilon 4 variant, two copies of that, and that actually increases my risk of Alzheimer's by like 15 to 20 times uh, versus people who don't have a copy of that uh, variant. Uh, and ever since, I kind of dove into the manifestations of Alzheimer's, the reasons behind Alzheimer's, and got into drug development, uh, to work on therapies against Alzheimer's. And as I mentioned previously, just eventually realize that it's the aging process that predisposes you to Alzheimer's and actually is the, the root cause of Alzheimer's and many other age-related diseases. And uh, well, now we're developing a longevity therapy and one of the first indications that we're targeting is Alzheimer's itself. But we're, we're not using the kind of the usual way of going after amyloid beta, for example, or tau protein, but we're going after the epigenetic um, pattern in gene expression in neurons, for example. So we're trying to tackle aging, uh, the aging process, and rewind the epigenetic pattern towards a more youthful state in, for example, neurons. And that's how we're trying to either slow down Alzheimer's or eventually maybe even reverse Alzheimer's. But initially, I got into drug development and longevity because of Alzheimer's. So it's definitely a personal personal journey for me as well as uh, you know, a professional one. I bet. And it's absolutely fascinating the work that you're doing and actually just thinking that we could solve these yeah, old age diseases at the, the molecular level because I think sometimes as a society we've just grown to accept that this is how things need to be. Uh, and I made a, p a post on my LinkedIn recently, actually, about how in the future, I hope for a future where we don't have these old age diseases, these cancers, this suffering that we presently have, purely because humans are living a lot longer than what we used to. Back in the day, we used to die in our 30s or our 40s, like some of us barely made it past our, our second birthday. Whereas now we're in this position where we've got science, we've got things that we've found out. And when I pose the question to people saying, well, in the future, we could potentially live longer. So many people attacked me and said, you just want to live longer because you have a massive ego. And what about all of the other people on the planet? And all of these really crazy perspectives. And when I spoke to Dr. Aubrey de Grey about it, he said that it's tricky because what you're asking people to do is change their fundamental worldview. When people find out when you're, you, you, you're going to die when you're young, it's a very horrifying thought. And I think what a lot of these people 
uh, forget is that we, yeah, we used to die of like um, uh, cavities back in the day. So it's, yeah, tell us a bit about where things are at with, with what you're doing. Yeah, you're absolutely right that for millennia, we, we had to come to kind of peace with the thought that we're all going to die. And we've created a whole kind of school of psychology around this acceptance of death. And this is something that we do at a very young age. We just uh, accept our mortality and just move on with life. And now that science is getting closer to actually not only allowing us to live longer, which is something medicine has been progressively doing for the past, you know, 100 years or 200 years, starting with cavities or vaccines or antibiotics. People, you know, used to die of leprosy and now you just take an antibiotic. And this is all kind of showing us the path to the future that the more we are able to understand biology and the more we're able to manipulate biology, the fewer things we have to accept about biology, ultimately with death and aging themselves. Like, we don't have to accept this reality. We can change it with our intellect. We are the kind of, well, for now, we're the most intelligent species, maybe until AI <laughs> takes over this, this category. And so we can uh, prevent the things that we cause us pain and suffering, such as, well, initially, you know, leprosy and cavities, but ultimately all, all age-related diseases and death itself uh, should be fully optional. I mean, Right now, it's unfortunately mandatory, and it has its own schedule when we get sick and we die. But in the future, there's no reason why uh, it shouldn't be something that, it, once we fully master biology, something that you know, should have, will be fully optional if, if people eventually would love to kind of finish their journey and end, uh, end their life. They should obviously have this choice. But right now, we don't have the option to live for as long as we want to to be healthy for as long as we want. And this is something that biology of, well, people who are working on aging and uh, longevity medicine is trying to accomplish. Basically give people this optionality to be healthy for longer and ultimately to be healthy for as long as they want. And we're definitely still at an early stage of being able to do that. But I think our understanding of the aging processes and consequently, our ability to manipulate them is growing you know, very quickly uh, over the past few decades. And I'm very optimistic that within the next couple of decades, we'll have new therapies that will be able to prolong our lifespan significantly. And, uh, and not just, well, health span initially, just the healthy years, maybe we won't initially prolong lifespan that significantly, but at least we'll be able to keep people healthy for longer, making, you know, 90 the new 60 or, or, or maybe, yeah, uh, 50 the new 30. Uh, but ultimately, of course, the goal is to allow people to live for as long as they want and be healthy for as long as they want. So that's, that's where things are and that's where the goals are. It's very uh, encouraging to think that come 20 years' time, this technology could be rather readily available. And I'll, I'll dive a little bit deeper into that soon. But tell us a little bit about how your technology works and what's the difference between the, the, the way that, that you sort of manipulate the technology as opposed to something, say, like CRISPR. 
Sure, yeah. So basically, we're working on gene therapies that use the reprogramming process. And people might have heard about this cellular reprogramming uh, paradigm where it has been discovered in 2006 that there are four of these genes that are called Yamanaka factors or Yamanaka genes that can essentially rewind a cell back in time, at least in, in, in developmental time. If you take a skin cell or you take a brain cell, and by activating these Yamanaka factors in that cell, you rewind it all the way back into embryonic-like state. And also, not only you rewind it back in developmental time, it turned out that you also rejuvenate it physiologically. So you take an old skin cell that has all sorts of uh, hallmarks of aging manifesting itself, and after the reprogramming process, that skin cell is fully rejuvenated if you reprogram it back to embryonic-like state, and then again, you're reprogramming into a skin cell, you're, the new skin cell that you've reprogrammed is fully rejuvenated. And this rejuvenating aspect of reprogramming has been seized upon from very early on in the longevity field in trying to essentially harness this rejuvenating power of reprogramming in the context of already formed organisms. And this is what's called partial reprogramming, basically using the rejuvenating aspect of reprogramming but not using the cell identity changing of reprogramming. Whereas you take a skin cell, activate reprogramming genes in it for a short duration of time, and you just get a rejuvenated skin cell. It, it remains a skin cell. And that's why you can then use, these, use this gene therapy in the context of an adult organism, because the skin cell remains doing its job and it's not being reprogrammed into a different cell type, like an embryonic-like cell type. And this is what's essentially the foundation for this partial reprogramming paradigm of gene therapies that we and many others are building. And by now, there's a dozen companies that are trying to translate this paradigm into therapies. So what we're doing is we're taking these rejuvenating genes, like Yamanaka genes, delivering them into cells that we're trying to rejuvenate, for example, neurons, your brain cells, in the context of Alzheimer's, and then activating those genes for short periods of time in with the goal of rejuvenating the gene expression pattern of those cells and essentially making neurons a little bit younger, physiologically younger and gene expression-wise younger. And so we're delivering those genes using, for example, lentiviral delivery system, and there's many other different types of carriers that can take an external gene and deliver it to your cell. Sorry, when we're talking about carriers, yeah. are we talking about like popping pills or uh, vaccines? It's more of an injection, yeah. Uh, also, there's different modalities where, for example, the genes that you deliver, they are not active until you take, for example, an activated molecule by mouth, like a pill, so as make it much more tunable, for example. Like you don't want those genes to be active all of the time. You want them to be active only for short periods when you actually induce them to rejuvenate the underlying cells that you delivered them to. But we're talking injections, and uh, yeah, for now, it's a process of delivering them, for example, into a target tissue and then activating them using a small molecule like a pill. Yeah, and of course, CRISPR is kind of the, the famous gene therapy approach, and CRISPR itself is, is uh, a molecular machinery that's uh, more targeted towards existing genes. And, and initially, it was just molecular scissors that bacteria use for, for de defensive purposes. And then humans kind of took that idea and 
turned it for something useful for ourselves. For example, if we want to inactivate some genes or change some genes that are not doing their job properly. And uh, CRISPR, yeah, you deliver CRISPR to cells and you give CRISPR a particular target and then CRISPR can, for example, cut a particular gene once it finds its target or maybe change a particular gene in, in a certain way. But for delivering novel genes that are not, for example, or for that are not active in the cell, it's, it's easier to deliver those genes externally. And that's when we turn to viruses, viral carriers, that we again have repurposed their the job that they're good at delivering their genetic material and uh, we just give them our gen genetic material that we want them to deliver and of course we modify viruses so as they're not harmful to to the cells that they deliver the genes to and we're essentially you know getting them to do our bidding for us in addition to viruses yeah, yeah there's other other technologies as well and as i said the field has come a long long way since like one or two decades ago in, in the gene therapy domain so when it comes to CRISPR, do they do work with people before they're, they're born, like in regards to, okay, we want someone who's more intelligent or let's take out this cancer gene that they'll be getting because then when they're born, they'll have a life of suffering. Like, is this something that, that you do at this level? Right. Well, definitely CRISPR got a lot of attention, I think, three or four years ago when the CRISPR babies were born. Lola and Nuna, I think, uh, had Jankui, if I remember correctly, in China, modified, uh, I guess, twins, twin embryos to, uh, I think, inactivate one of the genes that predisposes you to HIV. Yes, and um, he ended up in prison, I was reading as well, he, for about he, three years. He did. He did. Yeah, there, there was, I mean, initially, some people were celebrating it and others were, were saying it, it, it uh, is uh, an ethical, ethically problematic, and then I think China decided just in case, let's let's put them in jail, just so that you know we don't have any PR issues, and we're we're not condoning like human experimentation. Basically, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, like two orthogonal things. You can do this kind of modification, genetic modification with CRISPR or with uh, like a viral carriers. If you want to introduce novel genes, you can do this at the level of an uh, embryo. And basically then the, the person or the animal that you're, you're doing this on will have those genes present or those changes to the genes present in all of their cells once because, you know, an embryo develops from like just a single fertilized egg from a single cell. It, it divides and if you do the changes at an early stage where it's only like four or eight cells in the embryo, it's much easier, easier to make sure that all of the changes are in the all of the cells then if you have an adult organism with trillions of cells and it's it's really the delivery of those genes is still uh, not uh, you know perfectly solved and you can only target a subset of the cells even in a given even given organ and so by doing this at a level of embryo you solve the delivery problem and you we've been doing this in animals like transgenic animals transgenic mouse lines for a couple of decades now but now when it comes to humans of course, there's still probably ethics is, is the biggest reason why, why it's not being done today because, yeah, obviously you can do all, any sorts of genetic manipulation we do in mice. You can also do this in humans. And the only thing is that's stopping us is kind of ethical guidelines and some in some cases laws. For example, in the U.S., there's laws that you, you're not allowed to be on a certain uh, day of embryonic development to, to manipulate uh, or allow genetically modified embryos to develop. But yeah, you could potentially introduce, say, rejuvenating genes 
in, a, in an embryo and allow that person to be born with those genes and then activate those genes. Of course, we're not yet comfortable, I think, to, to do this in human embryos because we haven't yet fully tested this in humans. And let's first get the gene therapy approved in adult humans for adult human use, and then we'll be able to, to see if there's some potential genes that we can uh, introduce or change at the level of an embryo. But, you know, there's folistatin, you know, we, we, we had this discussion in, in Dublin about folistatin gene therapy that basically allows you to pr- produce more muscle mass. And th- there have been folistatin-induced genetically modified animals, mice and uh, cattle, for example, that, that have been born many years by now, but are like, should we introduce this at the level of an embryo? For, for children to be more muscular, maybe if you want, you know, a, a bodybuilder or a football player for your child, you, you could choose to to uh, do this genetic modification to, to 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 your child potentially. But I think right now, especially in like the big countries like the U.S. or, or Europe, I, I think this is not being allowed. But you could potentially go somewhere offshore and do this modification if you really wanted to. Whereabouts offshore is this happening? Like what locations? Well, I'm not sure if it's happening anywhere. Like I don't have uh, first-hand information. Yeah, but uh, there's definitely jurisdictions uh, in in other countries and in in some like smaller island nations that have uh, kind of relaxed regulations around pre-embryonic, uh, basically, genetic manipulation, et cetera. And I think it's it's coming, yeah, like clinics, fertility clinics offering their clients not just screening, because right now, like pre-implantation screening is, is a routine procedure. You can screen your potential child for all sorts of genetic defects or genetic problems and choose to, for example, abort or not even implant if you're doing a pre-implantation screening. Actually, manipulating or changing their genome maybe to correct those genetic problems and then changing their genome to enhance them somehow. That's a kind of second level that for some people presents an ethical problem, but for others it it does not. And I'm sure eventually we'll have fertility clinics somewhere in, in friendly jurisdictions offering all sorts of genetic enhancements, uh, not just genetic corrections, but genetic enhancements to to children, to parents who would love to, you know, yes, make their child more intelligent or more muscular, etc. I think it's interesting. And I was reading an article um, yesterday, actually, saying that when they did an experiment with, um, with parents and they asked them, who would like to enhance the intelligence of their child, actually one-third of participants came back and said that this is something they would like to do. And just even by doing that, the chances of getting entry into a university were so much higher. Uh, And I believe that it was also impacted when they knew that other people would be doing it as well, then they would more likely agree to something like this. But, of course, it does open a whole can of worms, so to speak, in terms of ethical concerns and things. And we already do have such disparity between the haves and the have-nots, so to speak. So walk us through the the ethical side of things a little bit. Well, I'm not a bioethicist by by any means. Uh, I'm I'm more of a 
think it's a practical person, a drug developer. But uh, I mean, yeah, these issues have been explored for for probably decades by now. I mean, Gattaca came out probably 20 years ago or, or even more. It's been a while, and uh, well, yeah, absolutely. People always wanted the best for for their children, uh, and uh, obviously, the tools at our disposable disposal have been getting better and better. And IVF itself has been initially viewed as something, you know ethically uh, dubious or maybe playing God and, and, and eventually has come to be accepted. And also people were saying that, yeah, only the rich can afford IVF. And then so, and as with everything, new technologies initially, they're more expensive, but as more and more people come to adopt them, the price decreases and becomes much more accessible to, to pretty much like most people on, well, at least in the developed countries. And the disparity between you know, developing and developed countries is a whole different question, like a geopolitical question that I, I don't think we should take into account into like bioethics discussions about novel technology. Should we develop them or not? Should we not develop something just because it will be expensive initially and only a few people will be able to use it? Absolutely, because eventually it becomes cheaper and more and more people will be able to use it. But at least from my standpoint, I don't think we should stifle uh, progress just because we have problems right now, like social problems right now and disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And to me, everything, like all the progress that we're making scientifically that is able to make people better, reduce people's problems, reduce pain and suffering, if we're talking about aging, if we're talking about diseases, or make them less predisposed to possible diseases or make them you know, smarter or better. I think it's, yeah, all of these things are, are good. And uh, I, I, yeah, like personally, I don't see any any good reason not to uh, continue developing them. You raised some great points. And just even thinking from how humans will continue to evolve, say we eradicate lots of these diseases and we also eradicate things that potentially get passed down through generations, are we going to end up with these almost like subgroup of human species? Like not even talking about the whole enhancing muscles, enhancing intelligence. Maybe I get some cool cat eyes in the future where I could actually see in the dark or, you know, do some cool things like that. I have children born with little cat ears. I don't know. But um, <laughs> do you think that we could end up with these like little subspecies of, of, of humans, so to speak? Well, I mean, maybe in the context of like a hundreds of years of evolution, you could have something like this. But I, I think the like the, the progress we have is much, much faster that this this really won't occur because we'll I think we'll transcend biology much sooner than we'll be able to do all these like it takes several generations for, for kind of subgroups to, to evolve. And I think we're essentially on the precipice of like advanced general intelligence, being able to upload our consciousness to uh, maybe like carbon-based uh, or I mean silicon-based rather than carbon-based uh, vessels. Because I mean, biology is so fragile. And if our goal is to enable us to transcend aging and death and pre prevent death of our personalities, biology is, 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 is probably 
not a not a great vessel for for personalities and we'll be essentially uploading our consciousness or merging our consciousness with uh, some sort of silicon based or, or some sort of like computer based vessel for our personalities and i mean we might still retain biological avatars and uh, we're, we're getting into a bit of a like science fiction territory but i, I think the 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 timeline of this happening is on the order of decades and maybe 100, 200 years. And for evolution to take hold of all the changes that we talked about just previously, it, it would take hundreds of years for, for like people to uh, develop into subgroups. So I, I think we won't, this won't occur because of the transcendence that we're facing between man and machine. And uh, by, w- w- yeah, we're just going to move away from biological evolution and, and biology altogether. And like the world that we'll see in 300 years or a thousand years, like I, I, we probably can't even fathom like how different it would be. Uh, pending, you know, we don't destroy ourselves in the process with nuclear war. Maybe artificial intelligence just doesn't decide. It doesn't really need these. I think it's uh, so fascinating. Of- <laughs> and I think this is, this is something that I'm often thinking about is are we doing enough as a human species to, I guess, push forward innovation from the biological sense because what you're talking about now is this whole merging man with machine and I sometimes look at these videos with robots and I'm often thinking about AI and hearing predictions from say Ray Kurzweil who says that we're going to achieve singularity by like 2045 like this kind of stuff's coming I was actually reading someone yesterday said that they thought it would be as soon as 2027 I'm like looking at my calendar I'm like holy crap that's like a few years from now sort of thing so um I often wonder if because it seems like there's so much regulation on our side of things on the biology side of things and you spoke about before as well how you've been doing animal testing but we're not quite at that point with human testing and with the regards to um, the China situation this gentleman actually went out and created these babies that wouldn't be affected by IVF and then he gets thrown in prison because the countries all kind of looked at each other and realised, oh gosh, we don't have any regulations, we don't know how to handle this situation. Is it okay? Is it not okay? Nobody knows. It's just such grey area. So are we doing enough, first of all, to yeah, encourage innovation from the biology standpoint? Are, are, or are there just so many roadblocks that make it all quite difficult? And are there not enough roadblocks on the AI robotics kind of front? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a- a- AI is a free-for-all. There's just no, no regulation. And I think the world is like the political leaders of the world are terrified. that There's just no way to, to control AI progress. Versus biology, there still is, and there's some kind of legacy laws that, yeah, biology is way more cautious than AI research. And maybe it's a bit ironic because, yeah, in the end, just AI could be that doom of humanity that brings brings an end to it if we don't kind of solve the alignment problem. But uh, in terms of biology, yeah, like I think all of the legacy frameworks are, well, not not preventing progress, but they're definitely preventing the translation of the progress that we have in animals in manipulating genes or creating, you know, transgenic organisms, intertranslating that into humans because people are just terrified of seeing a baby with 
maybe some non-human characteristics and of course the, the kind of the the do no harm mentality of, of medicine is probably more applicable to translational research than like the AI or computer science like hacker mentality just move fast and break things right so uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm already repeating myself by by agreeing with you completely. Uh, when do you think we'll be in a position where we can be doing human trials on these sorts of things with your technology? Oh, well, with our technology, like human trials, the gene therapies that we're delivering, uh, this could happen within two to three years. Like the particular disease that we're targeting, not Alzheimer's, we have another indication that's a rare disease that we're targeting. Potentially, like if all of the things go smoothly and we don't see any problems in animal safety testing, the first patients could receive this therapy within three years, maybe even two years if, if we can accelerate things. Alzheimer's, maybe four to five years, like first patients potentially could test the therapy that we're right now. Actually, just, just finished our animal testing in mice. And I know some companies are, yeah, doing some of the gene, well, I mean, gene therapies in general, there's like hundreds of different companies testing hundreds of gene therapies in humans, but the particular reprogramming gene therapies that we're testing and some other companies are planning to test like within two to three years. So I think re relatively quickly we'll see first results in humans. And if those are successful, I think the pace might pick up. We might have even more companies in the space and, uh, I'm quite optimistic that like within a decade, partial reprogramming therapies will be on the market for, for people to use. Of course, pending that there's no unforeseen safety problems. So I mentioned to you in Dublin that I'm obviously on this massive quest at the moment to try and prolong my lifespan and potentially live forever. Or I think Max Moore said to everybody that, with the rate of accidents that happen, we'd probably only live till 800 years before we get hit by a bus or fall off something or whatever on average. So I thought that was quite still interesting. It's still pretty good. 800 years, I'll take it. Better than 80, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Half of which is spent in... Uh, Working. Unpleasant. Yeah, unple and yes, and yeah, suffering absolutely. with the likes of cancers and Alzheimer's. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. 80 you, if we're lucky, yeah. 80 if we're lucky, yeah. Yes, yeah. Sorry. What you're saying today sounds rather encouraging. Do you think that it is quite likely that in 20 years, like we will be prolonging our lifespan? How long do you think we could prolong it to? Do you think that not even from the, the biology standpoint, but even with the technologies that are out there, like what are the chances do you think that this is actually probable? Or do you think that like I might die at 80, for instance, touch wood? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think the chances are very good, like that within 20 years, we'll have therapies that we could use that extend our lifespan significantly, extend our health span significantly so that we can wait for the next thing. And the, the, I guess this is the concept of Aubrey de Grey's longevity escape philosophy, that we don't need a therapy to make us, you know, to live to 800 tomorrow. We need a therapy that can keep us healthy for the next 10 years. That'll give us 10 extra years of progress in the, in the medical space. And the next therapy will come that will maybe rejuvenate us and keep us even younger. And so, yeah, I think the next decade, not even two decades, the next decade will bring significant 
therapies that can significantly extend health span and will will put us on our way to this longevity escape velocity that in, in 20 years, within the next 20 years, we'll have even more significant therapies that can actually potentially rejuvenate us. And within the progress in those 20 years on, for example, you know, the brain-computer interface or some sort of consciousness uplo- uploading or, or maybe, you know, cryopreservation technologies that will, in in combination, enable us to, even if some bad accident happens, if we get hit by a bus, that we'll, we're still able to preserve our personality and maybe revive it in the future when technologies, like maybe 100 years down the road, when technologies become available to fully restore our personality, our consciousness, or maybe, you know, our even our current body, that I'm, I'm very optimistic that, yeah, like, have you signed up to Even, Cryronics? Because we obviously were both oh yeah. at the um, at the networking event recently, weren't we? Oh, yes, yes. I've been Max as well. He's no longer at Alcor. But I've been an Alcor member for uh, many, many years by now. And um, I, am yeah, fully support the idea of cryonics and research the intercryonics that is still necessary to cryopreservation, not even just for ourselves, for cryopreservation of entire organisms, but for organ banking and organ transplantation, that is a huge unmet clinical need in, in, in the entire world. There's hundreds of thousands of patients just never getting their transplant because uh, the technology that could potentially preserve those organs and mix and match people is just not, not up to standard right now. And I think cryopreservation research is good definitely underfunded and underappreciated these days. So did you decide to freeze your entire body or are you freezing just your brain? Uh, Well, for now I'm full body, uh, but uh, I'm kind of oscillating between should I go for just neuro because uh, the standards of cryopreservation of the brain, if you're able to basically just focus on the brain, are right now a little bit better than the whole body. And the, it, it's sometimes even the question is raised, will you even need the, your, your body uh, in the future? Because maybe it, like it's all will be just about uploading your cautious consciousness or maybe even creating a, a, a new body, like a cl- cloning uh, you, you and creating like maybe just without, without the brain to avoid any ethical issues. But providing you with a new body, if you know, hundred years down the road, the technology is, is sufficient enough to restore you from cryopreservation and just kind of just transplant your brain into into the new new vessel. New, I hope there's body. people out there that like me enough to want to revive me. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I'm sure there's plenty of people, but uh, I think it's a very interesting concept, really, of, of preserving your body or preserving your brain. And as you rightly mentioned, in the future, we might not need these organic meat sacks, so to speak. We could have various different avatars that we're plugging and playing. And I think you and I, um, just as we were getting set up from the the podcast earlier, we actually started talking about how perhaps in the future if we do have various different avatar bodies and we are showing up as different selves, we might perhaps have a little bit more empathy for, for people who are a bit different from us. Yeah, absolutely. The, you could actually literally walk in someone else's shoes and experience like being a very different person between, you know, like genders, races, everything. And yeah, I think uh, like if if, we're, if you're able to do that, if you're able to have these avatars where you can actually have like a biological experience of a completely different different per- person, 
I think, yeah, this will greatly help uh, for people to appreciate perspectives of, of others. But, That's what uh, I love most. Unfortunately, we're not there yet, and we I still know. have to kind of survive the next few years. And that's exactly what people are telling me. They're they're saying to me, I'm saying, what can I start doing tomorrow so that I can, yeah, prolong my lifespan, live forever? And basically everyone's just kind of saying, you know what, bruh? You kind of just need to hang tight. Don't die in the next 10 or 20 years and something is coming is basically what I'm, I'm hearing on repeat from all kinds of people in industries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much scientific progress right now happening. And uh, unfortunately, like the geopolitical issues are getting in the way of this progress. And uh, like the smart people who are really changing the world are getting kind of interfered by by less smart people ruling the world. (laughs) That's unfortunately the problem that kind of the Stone Age mentality of the political process is still ruling the world while the kind of the 21st century scientific mentality is just not being able to to kind of transcend that and still has to be hostage, be held hostage to these Stone Age political processes. I feel like it's just some kind, everybody's out for themselves really, aren't they? They, they, they all want that next thing for themselves so it's always this back and forth drama and as you rightly said it's it's almost like everyone's so distracted with fighting over the wrong things rather than fighting for the good fight so to speak and when I did some research actually about how involved I guess uh, funding the government funding is in the longevity space I was absolutely appalled at how much money went towards catering towards the sick care society that we presently live in and the tiny little millions that went towards longevity projects and then the trillions that went towards funding things like nuclear bombs. Yeah, it's, it's very sad. Definitely, you know, like the, the military-industrial complex is getting way more money and way more funding than initiatives aimed towards figuring out how to prevent disease, how to eradicate cancer, how to eradicate Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, Stone Age, we're, <laughs> our political systems are, are still there. And so what can it's, we... it's a very complex question. Yeah, what can we be, be doing? Like, where does your funding come from? Is it is it from private? Like, how, how do you guys get the funding? Yeah, we're privately funded, so we're, we're, we get funding from investors who are longevity-minded, translationally-minded, and want to see the partial reprogramming therapies to actually be put on the market and uh, well, hopefully earn, earn some money. Uh, but obviously, there's so many labs and so much research, fundamental research into aging, into longevity that's being funded by grants, uh, institutes like NIH, and yet as you rightfully, absolutely rightfully say, the proportion of funding that goes into solving the problem is minuscule compared to the funding that is actually goes towards dealing with the consequences of this problem, dealing with sick care, as you said. So it's, it's very unfortunate, but I think it also represents what we talked in the beginning, that most of the people, when you ask them, should we do something about aging, say no. To them, they're still stuck in the mindset, you know, of, uh, millennia past that aging is something natural, it's something you accept and do nothing about. Your mortality is something you 
accept and do nothing about un, un, until, of course, you get hit by like cancer or something. And, and then it becomes a tragedy and you try to do everything possible to get a few extra, few extra years, you know, with, for someone who's, you know, your loved ones with cancer or recovering after, say, a heart attack or stroke. But until then, people say, no, no, aging is natural. We all need to die. We all need to, you know, get sick and die to make sure there's no overpopulation or something else. And unfortunately, this is something that I think we also need to try to change in society. This perception of aging is something desirable. We need to show that science is finally able to do something about aging, that aging is not desirable. And as much as kind of we would hate to to get sick and die, we have to recognize that this is something that we're facing and something that we, we should try to to avoid. I think and it's it's that, so interesting, and I, I agree. I think it's 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 the perception thing at the end of the day. It's it's communicating the knowledge of where things are actually at and what things could actually happen to the people, to the masses. But I think the problem is is that in today's society is that. Yeah, we've, we've come to accept things at face value and I just believe that there is just too much distraction out there. We're, we're slaves to our phones. We're slaves to these little dopamine hits that they continually provide us. We're, we're too busy watching, twerking on, on TikTok and we're too busy watching Love Island on Netflix to actually go out there and be curious and actually do research and figure things out and actually see what is possible. We're all just too distracted is the way that I see it. And I feel very uh, passionately about this, I guess, as a media person. And I guess this is where my kind of role comes into play at bringing people's attention to the things that I believe are very important, such as solving aging or at least eradicating these old age diseases that we've just come to accept are okay but there's so much cancer, so much this Alzheimer's and so many diseases out there at the moment. And we're just accepting them at face value. We're just like, oh, yeah, when we get old, we we suffer and we die. And that's not good enough. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it, it starts with public perception. And people are just, they're not even aware that aging is, is something that you can change. I think yeah, if you just educate people on kind of the differences on how long different organisms live and that they're mammals that live for 200 years, maybe they'll start thinking about, like, why can't we live for 200 years at least? And, yeah, it starts with just kind of like this basic education. And people, you're absolutely right, pay much more attention to, like, entertainment or sports than to things that actually are much more important to their life because, you, you know, everybody is definitely getting some age-related disease, be it cancer or heart disease or dementia or definitely their loved ones, their, their parents. Are, and the research that is happening in the longevity space affects them so much more closely and so much more deeply than Love Island on Netflix. But for some reason, yeah, it just people pay, pay Priorities are wrong. Absolutely. Priorities are wrong. Absolutely. Well, it's been so nice to have you on the show today. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to our next catch up. I I think we'll probably see each other at another longevity event at some point, which will be very exciting. 
Yeah, it would be my pleasure. And uh, yeah, hopefully y- you can change some of the hearts and minds and get more people oh, interested. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I, I really research. want to. The more, the more I interview people, the more I'm just like, you know what, this is what needs to be done. Yeah, priorities are all wrong and someone needs to go out there and fight the good fight, so to speak, for all of you wonderful people that, that I get to meet. Yeah. Well, for all of us, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for, for doing that no, job. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah, you, like, you have kind of the right channels to, to get at the hearts and minds of uh, most of the people. Well, thank you so much, Yuri. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today and, yeah, love your awesome work that you're Likewise. doing. Thank you. The pleasure was mine.